1: In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.
2: Hey, everybody, we are super excited to return to the Sketchfest stage and do a live show again. We missed it so, so much last year, and we can't wait to get back to San Francisco.
0: Yeah, it's our first live show in two years, Chuck, and we're going to be there at the Sydney Goldstein Theater in beautiful San Francisco, California at 7.30 on Friday, January 21st. It is a straight-up, stuff-you-should-know live show, and it's going to be off the chain.
2: That's right. You should show up to see if we've forgotten how to do this, Mm -hmm. to see us skate around on stage nervously. Sure doubting ourselves and eventually bringing the funnies
0: yeah hopefully
2: where do they go they go to SF as in San Francisco sfsketchfest.com click on the schedule and tickets link there are tons and tons and tons of great shows it's the best comedy uh, festival in the country in my opinion over the whole month of January so go check us out and go check out everybody else as well
0: yep it's also a full vaccination show so you've got to show proof of vaccination and wear some masks don't be naughty Don't be naughty. Be nice. So we'll see you guys on Friday, January 21st in San Francisco, California.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Ahoy and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh and there's Chuck and we're the captains of this here ship called Stuff You Should Know. And uh, that's all there is to it. Although I do think we need to allow for the fact that Jerry is rear Admiral, And by that, of course, I mean rear-admiral. And by that, of course, I mean it's going to be a long episode. Uh, has there ever been a cutesy TV show called The Admirable Admiral? Uh, no, that sounds great. I think there was one, The Simpsons did one called Admiral Baby. Oh, all right. Well, that counts. Yeah. I don't know if the baby was particularly admirable, though. Could have been like a, a terrible person.
2: Uh, so I have a cold, so I just want to apologize up front. Uh, just a head cold, mm-hmm. but I'm a little stuffy, so I'm, I'm sorry if uh, if it's coming across as untoward.
0: I'm very proud of you for pushing through, Chuck. Because lesser podcasters would not. They 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 might they might just be like, I can't. I have a cold. People don't want to hear that. And you oh. say to heck with that, I'm going forward with it. Remember back in the day you had like a three month cold oh, that year. one year. Every year. <laughs> Every year for a little while. I used to get so sick. Yeah, no, it was terrible. But we've gotten much better, haven't we? Yeah, I think uh, I don't know, maybe quitting smoking had something to do with that. <laughs> maybe. Just a touch. You don't get colds like that anymore. No Good for you. I really don't. So uh and yet another reason to quit smoking everybody who's out there on the fence. That's right. Uh, so we're talking today, the reason I said that we're captains is because I was making a play on a story that it seems like every single person Chuck knows about. At the very least, I can say with almost a 100% confidence that everyone that you and I have ever met, seen in passing, talked to, um, or been in the same like country with, probably, has heard of the story of Noah and the flood, where Noah was told... To go ahead and build a boat because the, the earth was going to flood and everybody was going to be killed. And by the way, grab some animals, put them on board so that you and your wife and then the animals can all repopulate your respective species once the flood subsides, right? It's a classic story. Everybody loves it. We we, we read it out loud just about every Saturday at dinner time, and it's just a great story, right? Everybody knows this story, but it turns out, Chuck, that um, there's this idea that that actually happened. That that there, and it's long been an idea that the that what the Noah story is talking about happened in actuality. That there was a point in time where the entire world flooded, and. There's been a lot of scholarly research into this, into how that's even possible.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I guess if we're talking about this particular, because, you know, we've we've found after digging around and getting Ed to help us with this research that there are flood myths in not every culture, but a a lot of cultures over the years. And we'll get into that, you know, in lots of detail. But as far as actual Noah's actual flood from the Old Testament— Um, There was a gentleman in 1872 named George Smith who was a hobbyist of all things Assyrian and an amateur sort of uh, historical sleuth, but um, a well-educated one nonetheless because he could do things like read cuneiform tablets. Mm -hmm. And he was doing that one day on, uh, I don't know if it was an actual lunch break, Or if that's just apocryphal, but supposedly on a lunch break, went to a museum, was reading cuneiform, and came across a story of the Epic of Gilgamesh and read this, quote, Build a boat, abandon wealth and seek survival, spurn poverty, save life, take on board all living things, seed, animals, the boat you will build, her dimensions shall be equal, her length and breadth shall be the same. Uh, Doesn't say anything about cubits, but... It's inferred. <laughs> right. Uh, cover, her with a roo- cover her with a roof like the ocean below, and he will send you a rain of plenty. And George Smith said, hey, this is strikingly familiar as the Christian slash Jewish Old Testament Noah flood story, but this is several hundred years previous.
0: Yeah. And instead of um, God telling Noah or an angel telling Noah, it's the God Enlil who's telling a guy named Utanapishtim to build this boat. Noah's nowhere to be heard. And, and for what
2: reason? F- what do you mean? Well, I mean, wasn't this one of the ones where like earth is being punished basically?
0: Oh, yeah. So, um the reason that that uh Enlil gave to Utnapishtim was because the humans were too noisy and the gods were sick of humans, so they were going to flood the earth and kill off all humans. Whereas in the Bible it was because humans had become too wicked to to live. I think noisy and wicked are the same thing back then. I guess so. And it makes you wonder, like, did somebody misread the word? And, and they're like, noisy? Okay. Right. <laughs> and just barreled on. They're like, my lunch break is almost over. So George Smith just was like, noisy. It's, they said noisy. but the, the, uh, There was
2: also the idea of saving animals. And there was also the idea that afterward, uh, birds were sent out to find dry land just as in Noah's story.
0: Right. And so— Uh, You just kind of say, whoops, because um, the Epic of Gilgamesh predates the Old Testament by at least several hundred years, depending on what part you're talking about. And um, so you might say, okay, so the Noah story is adapted from this, but that doesn't mean that it undermines the veracity. They don't undermine the veracity of one another. In fact, if you stop and think about it, the fact that one of the first things that was ever written down after the invention of writing, cuneiform was the first written system humans ever devised. Yeah. And that the first literary work ever created, the Epic of Gilgamesh, contained this flood story. Um, It kind of suggests that Something actually may have a- happened. Like it was a really important story that has stuck around for thousands and thousands of years. The Epic of Gilgamesh was written 3,400 years ago. Um, that, that it suggests that there might be some, some kernel of truth to it.
2: Yeah. And over the years, a lot of people have tried to, um, prove whether scientifically or otherwise that the the noah's flood really did take place. Uh Bible literalists, is that what is that what we call them? I think so. Okay. Bible literalists um Bible historians because that would uh that, that would go a long way uh, in Christianity if you could say, "Hey, the Bible is an actual historical document. Mm-hmm. This stuff is really true." And in the 18th and 19th century there was something called uh diluvialism, diluvial meaning like relating to a great flood. But that was a big shaper of actual geology was basically saying, hey, this physical, literally the physical world that we're living in came about after this flood, what kind of reset things. Mm-hmm. And then the the real geological record came along once science got serious, and they proved that was not the case. Mm-hmm. And that kind of went the way of the dodo around, you know, the mid-1800s.
0: Yeah, they kind of did it backwards. They said the the Noah flood shaped the world as we see it. Go find proof. And when they found proof, they were like, it's not really adding up. Yeah. So there's no evidence that there was a global flood that inundated the world. And in fact, the geological record that these geologists— The early ones and, you know, up to modern day ones have been putting together supports the exact opposite of that. That Earth wasn't created in a deluge. It was created over incredibly long distances of time, very, very slowly, layer by layer, right? That's right. But people still say, okay, well, why, number one, why have we been telling this flood story for so long? And then also, why is it, like you said, the, the... idea of, of flood myth seems almost universal. Doesn't that like still strongly suggest that there was, even if the Bible doesn't quite have it right. And by the way, Noah's story also shows up in the Quran too. So it's in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament and the Quran. And then there's the Epic of Gilgamesh story. Like, why is this important story still around? Doesn't it still support the idea that something happened? Why would there be universal flood myths from cultures that had never even heard of Christianity before? And there have been, like, some attempts to explain that that I think are much more satisfying than the idea that we're just missing all of the evidence for a great worldwide deluge that happened back in antiquity.
2: Yeah, and there were, you know, it's more than just those. There were Chinese flood myths. There were... Uh, flood myths in southern Canada, in mm-hmm. the British Isles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, there was one study that picked out 50 cultures, and they all had their own flood myths, and that it was related to some kind of punishment. So, they started looking, like you said, of like, why why is this happening? And there's a bunch of reasons, and they all kind of make sense to me, if, if I'm being honest. Um, one of them is that there, there was a flood in these cultures but it wasn't a global flood but if you're you know if if all you know is a certain area and you never get to leave that area
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it wipes out everything you know then the story that you pass along orally um, through the years would sound like one that wiped out everything
0: yeah and, and like uh, the the whole idea is, is that this flood actually did happen way far back to one, Group. And then that group eventually kind of spread out and carried that flood myth with them. And so, to those of us today, historians, anthropologists, looking at like all of these groups that are spread out all over the world, all sharing basically the same story, it would make it seem like a flood had impacted all of these groups that were that far spread out. So, it must have been a really big flood. But this explanation says, no, the flood was actually really localized. It was the group that it happened to that eventually right. spread out. That's yeah, that one explanation. Sense. It makes a lot of sense. And one of the, um, the groups that are usually um, kind of pinpointed as the, this flood happening to are the Proto-Indo-Europeans, who were known to have been around the, the, I think, the Caucasus Mountains to start and then just spread out as far as the British Isles, um, uh, basically all over Europe northwest east south um and that all of our languages like english germanic um just a whole slew of languages developed out of this group
2: yeah and some more support for this is the fact that there aren't flood myths in sub-saharan african cultures and these were groups that when they left africa they didn't come back so they would not have taken back with them uh a flood myth from Proto-Indo-Europeans. Mm-hmm. So, so would it all happened. kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's another kind of uh, related one, too, that um, that says that th- it, there were floods, just not a flood. That flooding is actually really common, so it happened to a lot of different groups. So, it would make sense that all these different cultures would have flood myths.
2: Sure. And again, if, you're, if you live in your uh, riverside village, and you don't get to travel very far from there, and everything you know of gets destroyed,
3: mm-hmm.
2: again, it could be, you know, lend support to the idea that it gets translated as a worldwide flood. Yeah, and if it, everyone's having these localized floods, right. which which happened, you know, there's always been floods, Yeah, then uh, not necessarily of the 40 days and 40 nights variety, but when things are passed around orally and then they get rewritten, Things get kind of mixed up.
0: Yeah, and it's our bad, those of us alive today, who are mistaking or or laying our interpretation of the word world onto, like, these cultures' use of the word world. They're saying their world, which is much smaller than it is to those of us today. When we think the world, we think the whole globe, you know?
2: Yeah, and speaking of laying your things on other cultures, uh, the third (laughs) one is Christian missionaries. Uh, And there's evidence of this happening. They would go and tell the story of Noah's great flood, uh, especially, you know, when colonization was happening too. And between missionaries and colonization, all these other cultures picked up on that original biblical flood tale. Mm -hmm. uh, Or I don't know if we should call it a flood myth or or flood tale at this point. Mm -hmm. What should we call it?
0: (laughs) I I think most people call it flood myths or diluvian myths.
3: Okay,
2: diluvian myth. That sounds a little more academic. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so Christian missionaries did this. And I think this is um, also evidence in the fact that uh, the South Pacific didn't really have one until uh, 1814 when they came into contact with, Christ- with Christian missionaries. And then all of a sudden they had the Maori flood myths.
0: Yeah, so they actually had a flood myth before, but apparently it was more tsunami based. And then after contact, with Christianity it became much more of like a deluge and it just bore some striking resemblances to the Noah flood myth of Christianity. And apparently that happened all over the South Pacific as well where um, these cultures will have their own kind of flood myth but it's always based on tsunamis but then the Christians come and go and all of a sudden it's a deluge where the water rose after like you know 40 days and 40 nights of rain and stuff. So that creates a lot of headaches for anthropologists but it also at the same time explains why a universal so flood myth or a flood myth would seem universal to those of us around today and why they seem to bear such a striking resemblance to one another you know
2: indeed I think we should take a break mm-hmm. and uh, I'm gonna go blow my nose okay <laughs> and then we'll come back and talk about geomythology right after this <laughs>
0: And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.
2: Hey, friends. If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. Like, what are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood the best? And why can't all this information just be in one place?
0: Yeah, well, now it is, everybody, on homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice.
2: That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults.
0: So, Chuck, that was nice of you to blow your nose at the break rather than during (laughs) recording, even though I still had to hear it. It was thick. Uh, You know what's funny? I was listening to,
2: uh, I don't know why I just thought of this, but I was listening to Paul F. Tompkins' Stay of Homekins podcast he does with his wife Janie the other day, and he was talking about sneezing on stage, and that that had happened to him once Mm -hmm. in his career. And Paul is someone who spent lots and lots and lots of time on stages. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's something to that. Of the body withholding things like sneezes. Because I've never seen anyone sneeze on stage. I've never (laughs) sneezed on stage.
0: Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I'm sure it's related to adrenaline and fight or flight. That's what I was thinking. I mean,
2: there's got to be something to that.
0: Yeah, like your body's like, I don't have time to waste all that energy (laughs) on sneezing. we got to get out of here.
2: we got to put on a great show. It would be really weird to think about it if like... I don't know, Barry Manilow in Vegas was talking about setting up Mandy before he sings it and just lets out a big sneeze.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for setting me up to reminisce yet again about the time <laughs> that you, me, and I saw Barry Manilow front row right. center in Vegas.
2: You would have been sneezed on with that big snozz, too. Yes,
0: we actually would have been covered in his, his sneeze.
2: <laughs> uh, all right, so we promised talk of geomythology. Here's the idea. Since science uh, really got its act together, there have been a couple of different ways to look at things like flood myths mm. as either um this is a a story about our cultural values, and there's a lot of religious metaphor involved, or this was an actual historical event. And geomythology came along to kind of say, hey, man, it can kind of be both. Like, there could have been a real flood, and it also... Took on metaphor and took on cultural values, and was used as a as a story of uh, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of to teach you a lesson. What's that like called? A fable.
0: Yeah, like a fable. Mm-hmm. So this kind of this field has emerged since um, I believe the 60s, and actually it was I was reading about this field of geomythology is like still really trying to establish itself in the field of geology, and most yeah. most geomythologists are. Trained geologists—that's where you start out. Who play D anD D, probably. But they—they they also are like you know they have to really defend what they're doing against their fellow geologists because they're—they're they're basically saying all of these myths, all of these legends, all of this histor- these these folk traditions, they actually contain. Eyewitness accounts of natural disasters, of weird events in Earth, of uh, early finds of fossils. And yeah, they've, they've encloaked them in the language of mythology and the terminology of mythology and monsters and weirdness and all this stuff that makes it just seem completely um, legendary to us today. But um, that's how these pre-scientific and often pre-literate cultures um, passed along really valuable information and like we've been kind of foolish to just discount them yeah. as, as all nothing but legend as if there's no fact whatsoever in there. And Don't so this, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly. And so that's what geomythology is doing. They're saying wait a minute, wait a minute. If you just look at this the right way, we're covered up in historical accounts just waiting for us to unravel if we learn how to, to read these correctly and then also correlate with actual like known geological events that we've discovered through science
2: yeah like hey you see that story that uh seems completely crazy about a demon god who lives in a mountain and gets angry and spouts uh fire from its top Mm -hmm. like that's a volcano bros and like just because it sounds crazy doesn't mean we shouldn't look at the fact that an actual volcano eruption might have happened then
0: and let's kind of marry these two things and let's just all get along right and so like that 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 legend about the volcano with the angry god that sometimes spews like scary stuff forth and if you ever hear the mountain starting to to make rumbles it means the god is waking up and you should run like um, that's that is a way for a culture that is aware that this mountain's actually a volcano, and that volcano can sit dormant for generations at a stretch. So those there will be people born in the future who aren't aware that that's a volcano, and this is the way that the culture passes down over deep time this really important information. If the volcano ever makes a sound, run because you don't want the fiery breath of that god that's trapped inside. It makes yeah, perfect I, I love sense.
2: this stuff. Like yeah. Before science came along, mm-hmm. all humans did from the moment they they could sort of form thoughts was try and explain what mm-hmm. was going on around them from right. rain and thunder to volcanoes and floods. And I don't know. I think it's super interesting. It, it's almost like... These proto-early warning systems,
0: right? Like nuclear they just didn't semiotics. really know how
2: to explain the science of it.
0: Exactly, like nuclear semiotics. Remember we did an episode on that on how to yeah, tell people 10,000 years in the future about steering clear of nuclear waste, right? It's the same exact principle. It's just, Chuck, somewhere along the way, we later generations became arrogant and just— completely discounted any yeah. of that of those pre-scientific traditions because they didn't appear scientific but it is exactly like what you're saying it was the way that they made sense of actual stuff and so there's plenty of stuff to learn from those those accounts and those tales and those myths and legends we just have to basically kind of uh, eat a little bit of crow and go back and be like well we've been ignoring this to our own detriment
2: yeah and it's like you said earlier it's 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 a tough mm-hmm. Uh, road to hoe though for scientists these days if they take this on because you know you have mixed results when you go back and you look at these tales some of them may just be folk tales and legends mm-hmm. and some may have kernels of truth some may have a little more truth so there's a lot to sort of parse through as a geologist these days if you're if you're if you're working as or with a geo mythologist
0: right um, and so. When, when you are laying this out and trying to figure out, okay, what, what is this myth describing? You know, again, you're a trained geologist if you're a geomythologist, but you're also working with um, people from other scientific fields. Um, f- as far as trying to uncover um, this, the, the fact, the kernel of truth behind these flood myths, you would be working with um, paleohydrology. Or paleobathymetry, which is the study of ancient sea levels, like where they were at in in the past. And um, so you're going to take like the the findings from these fields and then say, okay, let me see if I can correlate it with a myth. Or you find a myth and you say, okay, let me see if I can correlate it with paleobathymetry or paleohydrology findings. Um, And they've actually turned up some really interesting stuff so far.
2: Yeah, there was, uh, in 2016, there was a mm-hmm. study that tied together uh, one of the Chinese flood myths from about 4,000 years ago. Uh, basically, that there was a great flood, wiped out China, it lasted for a couple of decades. And then this great man came along who had become emperor, uh, Emperor Yu, and tamed the water. Mm-hmm. So geologists went back and they said, uh, all right, there's an ancient landslide around that same time that dammed up a river and a lake filled up behind it. In about six months or so. And then that flooded, uh, that river got flooded, broke through the dam, and there was this huge flood. And they have found uh, sediment that sort of tracks along these lines. Then they found that Emperor Yu actually, it it turns out he may not have been, you know, magically tamed the water. He just had a knack for early engineering Mm -hmm. and that he dredged the waters and it cleared up the river's flow. Things returned to normal and he became emperor. But back then it gets, you know, told as a tale of this, you know, great soon to be emperor that tames the waters when he was just good at what he was doing.
0: Right. But they I mean, they found like evidence, geological evidence that backs all of this up, that this whole series of events, the earthquake that triggered the landslide, the landslide, the dam, the lake filling up in six months, the lake breaking and flooding, that all this happened within a single year. That is definitely the kind of thing that your culture is going to make note of and pass down over the years, that this kind of thing can happen. And then not only that, this great person came along and freed us from the the burden of these floodwaters that apparently stuck around for 20 years. That's right. It's pretty cool. There's another one that is just beyond thrilling, if you ask me. That a lot of people say this is probably, this is possibly, and I think that's a that's a big reason a lot of like mainstream geologists have problems with geomythology, is we we can't really see a course to getting to the point where we're saying this is the one, this is this flood that we have evidence of is what gave rise to the epic of Gilgamesh and Noah's story. But you can say there's a really good chance that this, this is the one, this fits the bill. And this one does kind of stick out like that. That's
2: right. This one uh, in the 90s, it became fairly popular. That basically said that there was a oceanographer named William Ryan and another guy named Walter Pittman. Uh, they were, I think, in the early 2000s, and they said that rising sea levels at one point caused the Mediterranean to burst through uh, the Bosporus Strait about 7,000 years ago. And this was a, like, a legit serious flood that I'm sure seemed like a flood, like a global type of thing. Uh, It created a waterfall, a volume 200 times that of Niagara Falls, and I think enough water in one day that could have flooded Manhattan by 3,000 feet. Yeah, that's
0: quite a a bit. They also determined that the... um The Mediterranean Sea moved inland. The coast moved inland by about a mile a day. Can you imagine seeing that happen before your eyes? Like you're just, you'd almost lose your mind. Again, that would make a a really great story that you would pass along and, and, and explain it in whatever terms you could. But there would have been coastal settlements along the Bosporus uh, straight on either side, on the Mediterranean side and also on the the Black Sea side that all this water poured into. And it would have just completely wiped those settlements out. So the people who did survive would have been like something really bad happened yeah. here and this is how we're going to make sense of it. And the timing of it was just right. Um, it happened probably about 7,000 years ago. And as we'll see, there's a lot of stuff that happened around seven thousand seven hundred five hundred years ago around the world because the end of that uh, last glacial period started, and the sea levels rose, and, and all sorts of crazy stuff happened as a result. But that's a that's one that people point to is like that may be the the flood that gave rise to the um, Gilgamesh and Noah stories. No pun intended. It gave rise. I think so. It really was unintended. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, another one about seventy five hundred years ago was the creation of the Persian Gulf. Kind of a similar kind of thing during the last ice age. That what is now the Persian Gulf used to not be. It used to be a very nice river valley uh, near the Fertile Crescent where people lived. And the thing here, though, that I don't quite get is that they haven't they haven't found any evidence of of things underwater there, right?
0: No, they haven't. They, they, the reason why they think this happened, Chuck, is because all of a sudden on the shores of the Gulf as we know it today, some like really well-established settlements with decorative pottery and well-built stone houses and all sorts of other things, domesticated animals, just sprang up basically overnight. So
2: they were relocated, essentially.
0: Yeah, that's really the only explanation. It went from hunting settlements, hunting camps, to all of a sudden these people are like an advanced society. So okay, the, that the, makes sense. The best explanation is that their original settlement is down there beneath the Persian Gulf. We just haven't found it yet. What about Doggerland? So Doggerland is another similar story. They both share what's called aquaterra, um, by the way, which is a, a coin or a term that was coined in the 90s to describe these lands that were exposed for 150,000 years that humans were kind of developing and forming mm-hmm. societies and then were lost just 7,7500 7, 7,500 years ago when the sea levels rose again. So, Doggerland and the idea of the Gulf being a, um, an underwater, now-submerged settlement, Doggerland's like that, but instead of in the Persian Gulf, it's been in the North Sea. It was a patch of land that connected the British Isles to Scandinavia before until about eighty five hundred years ago.
2: Right. And here they have actually found submerged traces of settlements under the sea, mm-hmm. uh unlike the one in the Persian Gulf.
0: Right. Um and they actually think that it's possible. Some some people are saying no, it was probably just you know slow, steady sea level rise that that flooded Doggerland. Um but they there was a um massive landslide in, I think, Norway called the Storrega event um, that happened 8,500 years ago. And, and it probably generated a massive tsunami. Um, and it could have been big enough to have submerged Doggerland permanently after that. Apparently, that's how big that underwater landslide was.
2: Yeah. I was about to say underwater. You got to point that out. Cause...
0: Yeah. <laughs> But there's a, a flood story um, from Brittany around that area that says that a king's daughter um, was possessed by a demon and opened like the, their their country's floodgates, and the, that was flooded, you know, catastrophically. So it's like, you know, are they talking about this event that happened 8,500 years ago that this is survived as this legend until today?
2: That's right, and yet another uh, right here in the. Well, and now the U.S. of A, but in the 1980s and 90s, they investigated flood myths of the indigenous peoples in the Pacific Northwest, and they found out that their flood myths, uh, this was a little more recent. This was around 1700 A.D., but uh, the idea is that there was a like magnitude 9 earthquake uh, that caused a tsunami unleashing these big waves from basically sort of uh, Vancouver Island all the way down to Northern California.
0: Yeah, it was the Ho and the Quiluke people um, who had this legend of thunderbird and whale getting in a fight. And um, what's what's interesting is, I mean, there's all sorts of geological evidence. Apparently, there's still trees that are just not where... They're, they're just not growing back. They were wiped clean from the tsunami. Um, but the they there's a Japanese temple, a Buddhist temple, that marked the date, January 6, 1700, because a tsunami wave made it all the way to Japan, and they noted it. So be, by basically cross-correlating that Japanese um, noting of the date with the Ho and the Quilukes um, uh, story about thunderwar- Thunderbird and Whale, they've said this is this story is about this particular event, which is pretty awesome.
2: And then sometimes it's just uh, a culture like pre-science again, making sense out of finding weird things, mm-hmm. uh, like the Zuni people in the southwest of the United States. Uh, obviously, not back then, they, they saw these, you know, ancient marine animals and seashells in the fossils that they were finding, and they said, well, this is part of our a uh, creation story. There there was a great flood, and that's how this stuff got here.
0: Yeah, here in the desert, which is, I mean, that's how a pre-scientific com- culture would make sense of that kind of thing. Pretty cool. Absolutely. So, um, I say we take one more break, and we're going to ta- talk about the other aspect of these myths, the mythology part of it, right?
2: Right after this. Hey, friends, if you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. Like, what are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood the best? And why can't all this information just be in one place?
0: Yeah, well, now it is, everybody, on Homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice.
2: That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults.
0: Okay, so if you take um, a myth and you strip the mythology off and you just look at the kernel of historicity and try to figure out, you know, what event it's actually describing, um, you don't want to just forget the myth part. You want to go back and also look at the myth part, too, because that reveals a lot about humans uh, and who we are and how, how we think spread out even across cultures throughout the world. Um, and there's a lot of similarities that pop up from um, from examining geo-mythology, uh, especially with flood myths, even when you set aside the idea, or I should say, even when you um, account for the idea of missionaries spreading the Noah flood, too.
2: So, yeah, you know, one of the things that's uh, interesting to look at is how these things are, how these myths are similar. Mm-hmm. And one way that a lot of these flood myths are similar is that, Uh, And we've already seen a little bit in what we've talked about is oftentimes it's a man and a woman, uh, usually a man and a wife, who are charged with um, gathering up the animals, with repopulating the earth afterward, uh, saving the species essentially. Um, There's usually a warning, um, whether it's Noah's flood myth or all the others, where, uh, you know, someone comes along and says – you know you better get your act together, Earth or tell everybody on Earth you know you are the messenger to get their act together, or else I will rain down rain upon you
0: <laughs> right, yeah, um there's also sometimes a um a warning, I guess. One of the warnings, Chuck, that came through, I think we said earlier that the Chinese have, like, at least four flood myths. Um, and one of the warnings that, that uh, came through was to this brother and sister who freed a thunder god um, from their father's, I guess, chicken coop or whatever. He, their, their father had captured him. And so the the thunder god said, hey, thanks a lot, kids. By the way, the things are about to get serious around here. You might want to build a boat. Actually, yeah, I think they built a boat. But... Um, but they're one of those interesting stories where you said usually it's a man and wife who end up having to repopulate the earth. That put these two kids in the position of having to repopulate. And um, that was a taboo. Incest is a, a basically the universal taboo, one of them. Um, and that was the same in ancient China as well. So in different versions of the story, either the brother and sister basically got a pass this time. Another version is that... Um, the brother had to go through a huge series of physical challenges and couldn't, and that somehow the earth became populated anyway. And the third version is that they just made everybody out of clay that they made themselves. All right. Okay. Um, but the, the, if you start really kind of looking at floods, there's like, especially the purpose of the flood. That's the thing. Like, it's very rare that the flood happens in a flood myth just for fun. Like there's almost always a reason, like humans want there to be a reason, so we've come up with different reasons over the um over the years, and one of them is um, basically the apocalypse that that humanity is being wiped out usually as as punishment, uh, and that it, we deserve to survive. And we would have to survive or else we wouldn't be around to be passing the story along. So, somebody had to survive. So, that's where those people who repopulate the earth come from. But the rest of us, we got wiped out because we displeased the gods.
2: That's right. Uh, Another one is that we started out as an ocean ocean. Uh, And nothing but ocean. So, this is just a reset to that return to our original state here on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of cultures around the world that basically thought that we started out as an ocean. uh, From ancient Egypt, uh, Norse, I think in Japan as well. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, it's either – returns us to uh, a state of water or an island above an ocean.
0: Yeah, and that's—I mean, that's so closely related to the apocalyptic one, too. It's just that's—we just happen to be returning to how things were before, which is also related to another kind of theme— as a reason for the flood, which is purification. Like, yes, you're being punished, and yes, you're returning to this uh, primordial state, but the ultimate reason that, say, like, God or the gods have is to purify things, to, get, to rid the world of evil and just keep the good and start over with just the good, basically. That's another big one, too. And they're all kind of, you know, pretty tightly wound up together.
2: Yeah, so, then there's just angry gods, and it might not have anything to do with you um doing anything wrong as a culture or getting your act together it's just that the gods were angry so they they kicked open the top of that mountain and it became a volcano and sorry ts for you guys yeah
0: just happens but that's still interesting that people that's a rationalization even in itself though isn't it it's just kind of like sometimes that happens even if you didn't do anything wrong I think so. So, the, there's another one, too. Um, that Emperor Yu myth is a good example of um, industriousness. People working together. People controlling things. Um, where the the earth has done something crazy. Maybe the gods were responsible. But humans managed to overcome it. Either in the the, the uh, form of like a, a savior like Emperor Yu. Um, there's one in uh, Bhutan. I believe there's a legend about Guru Repoach. In um, the Zhangpo Valley, um, he shows up and basically drains a, a lake, exposing all this fertile farmland where a village was then settled. Or the, um, and I apologize for this, I genuinely could not find a pronunciation for it, Chuck. I really tried. But the Gungani G, Aboriginal people, G U N G G A N Y J I, they have one where. Um, the tsunami keeps coming and coming, and the sea levels are rising and rising, so the people are organized and get together and start rolling boulders down into the sea, and it actually prevents the sea levels from rising any further. So I think that's probably my favorite one, the industriousness and control ones.
2: It's good stuff. And then people have gotten a little weird over the years with trying to explain these away. Uh, There was a Hungarian psychoanalyst named Giza Roaim, uh, in the 1930s, it said, no, the reason why we have all these flood myths is because they're just from people's dreams, and people in ancient times uh, drank a lot of water and peed a lot at night, and so they dreamt about floods and told stories about floods. Or maybe it is um, the gods urinate on, urinating on people, mm-hmm. like literally, which, and there are myths that literally talk about that, uh, that floods are a result of gods peeing on earth. Um, but I don't know about expanding that to, like, all the cultural flood myths all over the world for all time.
0: Right, and there's others that explain it as, like, men's jealousy of not being able to give birth and that it's a reference to uh, the bursting of the amniotic sac or something like that. Um, I feel like when, when psychoanalysis gets involved, especially in this day and age, it's kind of like, that was a nice try, everybody. Let's just move on to geomythology instead, you know? I think so. That's where I'm putting my money, Chuck. Geomythology. It's fantastic stuff. Uh, And also, I should say, I want to give a shout-out to one of our past episodes. Was there a real Atlantis? We were doing geomythology without even realizing it. That's right. Uh, If you want to know more about geomythology and flood myths, then just start searching the Internet, because there's a lot of interesting stuff out there about it. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. This is a
2: shout-out to the uh, one of the winners of the Stuff You Should Know 5K. Uh, this is something that the Stuff You Should Know Army puts together uh, every year now in a, in a virtual way right now. Uh, but our buddy Aaron Mazel is one of the people who works on this. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking to do this again next year because here's the deal is they sent me this stuff afterward. <laughs> right. And I was like, well, we need to get this before. So I'm going to go ahead and say it now, and then we'll see if we can remind people. But people voted to have this happen in late September, early October. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 2022 is when it's hopefully going to happen. Again, uh, no official registration, no entry fee. Uh, There's an event page, I guess, at the Stuff You Should Know Army Facebook site. And um, I think people had two weekends to participate this year, and they had bike riders this year. So, regarding, you know, regardless of what your status as an athlete is, Mm -hmm. they're finding ways for you to get involved, which is really cool. Yeah. So, this is from uh, Amanda, though, writing in to say that I'm a winner, baby. Uh, You guys are the best, been listening for years, and I was happy to participate in the virtual stuff you should know 5K this year. It was a cool event that brought some really nice people uh, together at our little corner of the internet. I'm not a particularly good or fast runner, but I get out there and I did the dang thing, and that's what counts. Uh, the other participants in the 5K radiate that spirit and are so encouraging of each other. Don't ask me how, but somehow I achieved fastest 5K for a woman in this event. What a cool feeling. Uh, so today I listened to Venus fly traps on the way home and came across a package addressed Stuff You Should Know 5K champ Amanda Thompson and just about cried uh-huh. and got a handcrafted uh, by Stuff You Should Know Army member Metal
0: Rack. Uh, for her efforts, and it's really great. That's pretty great. She has to buy her her own medal, though. I don't think so. (laughs) That's fantastic, man. Congratulations, Amanda. That's wonderful news, and congratulations to everybody who participated and finished or even just started or even thought about doing it. Maybe you'll do it next year. Who knows?
2: (laughs) That's right. Congratulations to everyone.
0: Yep. Uh, And again, that is a very cool thing that Stuff You Should Know fans do, and it makes us love you guys even more. Uh, You got anything else?
2: No, just be on the lookout next uh, late summer, fall for news on the Army Facebook page.
0: Yeah, somebody please remind us ahead of time so we can tell everybody else. Uh, And if you want to remind us of something, we would love to be reminded because that probably means we forgot And you can put that reminder in the form of an email, which you can send to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
1: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.